Hello, internet, and welcome to another stintillating episode of Never Stay Dead. I'm Matthew Darius, and I'm here with my co-host. I am Damien, and I'm so grateful to hear the real catchphrase this time. I don't even remember what I said last time. <laughs> Zing, zang, zoom, or something like that. <laughs> right. Um, today, we are going to be discussing the DC classic, a milestone in their library, Identity Crisis, by Brad Meltzer and Rags Morales. Rags Morales. Every time I read, I read so much around this book, and they just referred to him as Rags continuously. Uh, it's quite a name, Rags. I wonder if it's short for something. It might be more common in Puerto Rico. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so. Before we begin, though, we'd like to remind you to leave a comment, like us on YouTube, subscribe to Sleepy on YouTube. Or more importantly, and... comments uh, or a uh, rating on iTunes, because we need we need more ratings on iTunes so that more people will discover us there so that it will be worth our while to do a podcast. Even if you're listening to us on YouTube, if you can go over to iTunes and leave us a rating, that would be great. Or you could go in above and beyond, like one of our followers, 64-page special, oh who clipped out a bit of one of our past podcasts and added some commentary and did a whole thing with it. That was something else. Or That was like amazing. Another... Let's, can I just, I want to thank oh, him yeah. also myself. 64-page special has his own YouTube channel. It's a great YouTube channel. I'd be happy if that's all he did, his own things. But... He did this incredible slideshow to go with part of our last podcast. Or was it the podcast yeah. before the last? It was the podcast before the last one. We were talking about Alan Moore and Grant Morrison oh, right. and the like. And on top of that, he is one of the greatest commenters on my channel. He always comments uh, on on the blo- on this uh, podcast um, too. And so, really greatly appreciated, Mister Sixty Four. He's also one of the best tweeters and leaves us a bunch of great tweets and oh, usually yeah, promotes yeah, the show really as well. Is. And he's very a very funny guy. He is. And he's beautiful in the face. And he has a mad man crush on Matt. I mean, that's just normal. Uh, yes. You have to deal with that. It's one of the crosses you bear in life. It, it's true. Um, and I also want to thank our pod father, the Longbox Review, for also clipping out a bit of our show but he did something tighter and that was put up on twitter and that was honestly fun to hear you know unexpectedly right apparently there's an app that will actually print out the words from a podcast from a few seconds clip of a podcast and then you can post it on twitter or probably elsewhere yeah that was really cool yeah yeah um and yeah, hope, hopefully I can speak to you soon, Eric. Yes, and yes. Eric's podcast is still going strong. Longbox Review, if anyone out there doesn't subscribe to it, you definitely should. It's one of my favorites. Just had a great um, conversation with Travis about the future of DC Comics and other comic what? book news. That's pretty cool. Travis is alive? Travis is alive. He, he's not live live casting on youtube but he is still out there chatting comics with with eric i haven't seen or heard from him in many a moon yes well he's way behind on his comic book reading what yes tragedy has struck 
What? Oh my. <laughs> Something had to have happened. Um, so... So back to oops, I just knocked something off my desk. Throwing things around. <laughs> it's very exciting. Back to Rags Morales and friends. Uh, identity <laughs> Crisis. Yes. It's a seven issue miniseries, which we have both just read in the trade form. So here's a question for you, because you're a man who cares about comic definitions and things. Yes. Is this a miniseries or is this a maxi series? That's tricky because I usually think of a mini series as six issues and a maxi series as twelve, and this is seven. That's very odd. Seven. Um, I guess I I personally would call it a mini series. Okay. It's really a graphic novel, I suppose. Really, you think, or does well, it, do you think it works better serially? Did you read it when it was coming yep. out in individual issues? I didn't read it when it was coming out in individual issues. I read this uh, picking it off the shelf originally at the library uh-huh. in, at my college. But at that time, I had read some like Birds of Prey and a few smatterings of things like, um, you know, the the Alan Moore Batman stuff and uh, thing here or there. But I didn't really understand DC. Like when I read this, it was oh. my first exposure to Green Arrow, the elongated man seeing the flash in comics, understanding who the Atom was. Um, so this a whole is a pretty things. early DC exposure for you. And it really is yeah. a certain angle on the DC universe. Um, mm-hmm. And honestly, at the time I read it and kind of appreciated kind of the general mystery stuff, but a lot of the texture mm-hmm. or what they were talking about was missing. And so yeah, I, reading it now, I feel like I really read it for the first time. So you got a lot more because it relies on a certain knowledge of all these characters in a way. Mm-hmm. As did my second big venture into DC, which was Final Crisis, which made no sense. Ah, I've not read the Final time. Crisis yet. Final Crisis is not something to read if you're not familiar with uh, DC. Right. Well, I it's am just not a good first comic. DC now, but it's not yeah, a good first. You'll comic. be fine. Yeah, I fine. I really thought about that as I was reading this. I mean, we'll get to the plot in a second, but it definitely felt like it was playing to the the deep DC reader. And um, I have a vague impression that that's what the early 2000s were like at DC before the new 52, that it might have been great for people who really were immersed in DC, but just not good for everybody else. Not not good, but not as easy to approach for everyone else. Yeah, I'm curious why you're saying you're comparing it to the new Fifty Two. Well, because I think of coming out of the '90s, I feel like DC hired a lot of good writers and stuff, and went in deep into their material, and mm. really took seriously that what continuity they had and all of that, and the characterization. Yeah and such and it might have been a really wonderful time for a hardcore dc fan and those were the people who were really pissed off when the new 52 happened which for me was when i kind of came back to dc after leaving sometime in the early 90s for the most part right new 52 was weird for me because i really dove into dc right before oh yeah that must have been quite weird (laughs) and then what, what so really you just adjusted was, your head to DC and then they changed it. Well, but the books that I was really reading and enjoying were Rebels and um, 
the Sinister Six, or not Sinister Six, the Secret Six. Secret Six. Six. Was that still uh, Gail Simone? uh, It was, yeah. And also Birds of Prey, which wasn't her at that point. Mm -hmm. But except for Birds of Prey, all my books went away. Right. And so coming, continuing with DC was pretty hard because I was never as big into Batman or Superman, but I was a lot more interested in some of the more periphery. And a lot of that went away and has continued to be away actually they're just bringing the legion back now which going back to eric should give him a good upshoot because he's been on that legion podcast for a while so i imagine people will be coming in looking for that so they got to pick up right i mean i definitely turning to his podcast to hear what they think of the new the new legion stuff well the new 52 when it started did do a lot of periphery stuff but different periphery stuff i guess you know like frankenstein agent of shield and they brought back animal man and they did a bunch of stuff, but yeah, they dumped the peripheral, and now they've dumped even. Uh, starting with Rebirth, they really dumped a lot of the periphery. But so this is this what we're looking at is at the time kind of a core Justice League book, and I had assumed that you were more of a a Justice League person because you've talked to me about Grant Morris Grant Morrison's Justice League, so I thought you had been reading that when it came out, but you must have read that later on. It was only a few years ago. Um, Grant Morrison kicked off a run of Justice League that went for a good long time. Right. Um, and I have all the trades right behind me, and I read that run. And there's a lot of good stuff in there with him, with Wade, with uh, Kelly. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's something I enjoyed. But this feels very separate from that. It was kind of right after that point i believe yeah since i haven't read that run of the justice league i assumed that this was building off of that but i maybe not then well i mean it it definitely plays to that era but so this was written by brad Meltzer. this was kind of a point where dc was trying to pull in more uh, novel authors to be comic writers but this wasn't his first work and he was a very accomplished thriller writer but he'd already done green arrow right and he makes Green Arrow a major narrator of He does, story. and I'm very much for it. This uh-huh. is the era of Green Arrow that I love. Right. So, well, let me give my real mini description of the plot, and you can oh, throw out yeah. more stuff. But this is basically a murder mystery, and it will, there will be spoilers in this uh, podcast. And yeah. as a mystery, literally, we will have to spoil the solution to the mystery, I think to discuss it so if you are concerned with that read the book first and come back and listen but so it's a murder mystery where sue dibney the wife of the elongated man who to me is a pretty obscure character and i did not realize his wife was involved in the lives of the justice league um because i missed that um anyway she gets murdered in your classic locked room no one could have gotten in or out. We have all the best security from all the geniuses of the DC universe set up to uh, secure her house. And she's killed. Her body is seared and burnt. And um, everybody loved Sue. And it's so shocking. And then it spirals outwards. Someone knows who the spouses and loved ones are of other members of the Justice League. And they're all uh, worried that that their loved ones might be killed, and there's a an, an attack on the Adams wife and on um, Tim Drake's dad. What's Tim Drake called? The uh, Red Robin. 
Red Robin's dad. At this point, he was just Robin. Right. And there's fears that Lois will be attacked. Fears that, uh, I don't even know the name of the green. <laughs> Which. I don't even that, know the name of the, the green arrow's uh, son, but there's worries about that. And so everybody Connor. has people they're starting to worry about. The one part that hit me is pretty funny was worrying that someone would attack Lois. I'm like, oh, like every other week. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> But so and the feeling part of the feeling of this book is that everything is a little more real. Like another thing that gets revealed in the first issue or the second issue is that Sue Dibney was raped by a supervillain. And that's kind of I mean, if you take supervillains seriously, yes, they would do things like that. But that's that's kind of the details that we usually don't get in comics. And and the, then they use their superpowers to kind of mentally neuter the supervillain, Dr. Light, who uh, who has raped her. And that's the thing I always heard about this book, that it was about erasing people's memories and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was central to the mystery. But the yeah, actual solution to the mystery doesn't really yeah. have anything to do with that. It's more like one of these stories where while you're trying to solve the mystery you uncover other secrets that people have been trying to hide, which is cool. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And kind of a classic thing from kind of sophisticated mysteries you might read in books, but not that you usually see in comics, I don't think. Mm. Was there any more you wanted to say for your general wrap-up? Well, I'm kind of avoiding the spoiler, but should I go ahead and say who they find out did it in the end? I guess we could save it for a little later in the podcast, at least. <laughs> so if I hadn't already scared you away with our spoiler thing, we'll, we'll wait a little longer before we get into that. <laughs> or we're just teasing you if you want to find out. Well, I think that keeps a little fun yeah, going. You can scrub so, ahead and not listen to it. So one thing that's funny is this book is constantly doing things that I feel like if it was another creative team doing it would be bug the crap out of me but there's something earnest and interesting this book and the way it handles things so yeah and that may have bothered me but give me any some examples or an example yeah yeah i i wanted to go through it a bit so the introduction to my collection is by joss whedon and i have this 10th anniversary edition it's a very beautiful print of i read a lot of extra material around this collection um i i was lucky i at some bookstore second charles we have near us it was like four dollars or something mm-hmm. so it's very i don't know it's a beautiful collection you got the hardback um, for four dollars yeah whoa considering how much i enjoyed this read uh definitely worth it um so joss whedon you've heard of him yes he did yeah. um dollhouse uh yeah, and some <laughs> lesser known things like uh, right. the avengers first two avengers movies and that really good Roseanne Slayer. episode. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, and Dr. Horrible's musical sing-along thing. That's his most famous. Yeah, I think it actually is. <laughs> so he he talks uh, around this book a bit, but he talks about what Brad brings to this book is a humanity in these heroes that we don't normally see. And at first I was kind of like, yeah, that sounds like some forward fluff that you normally get. Like, oh, they found some hidden rock or whatever. But the first issue is really just the elongated man talking to this one. Honestly, I don't know who this woman is. Firebird. 
I think I may have seen her briefly on the uh, Justice League Unlimited cartoon, but other than that. I, I had the hero click of her, but <laughs> that's it. What were hero clicks? I got some, but I never knew what to do with them. It's a miniatures game. It has some really obscure rules that actually holds it back from being fun, where uh, me and some, my friends modded the game right. to be more fun with a little bit of thought. Um, neither here nor there. Uh, we, one of the best competitive players lives in my town, is someone I know, actually. So but, while he's talking to her, sorry, I just have to interrupt. I'm looking at the page. No. What's the page number? Page 14 in my version. Um, oh, I don't get page numbers. It's um, He's talking to Firebird on the roof, and then they flash back to his first kisses with Sue Dibney. And he's got his elastic arms wrapped around her. It's a very awkward and creepy looking kiss. But, but yes, they are sort of showing. They're, they're delving deep into the human side of marriage yeah. and stuff. Well, and the part that really sold me that made this not so sappy but kind of more interesting to me is he kind of flashed back to you know some back when uh when they're coming up in his costume he just has like a, a dime store domino mask as his thing in some onesie and he's talking about how when he's kind of chatting her up it wasn't so much that he was that she was willing to talk to him because he was elastic man or anything but she was talking to him but also when the flash came, she's about the only person in the room that still had eyes for him, even though the flash had come in, you know, this big right. top tier superhero at the height of his popularity. And there's something about that that just hit me right. Um, well, that see, just... that hit me wrong. I mean, <sighs> OK, it, here we to go. To me, it was kind that was this is kind of my core problem with the book, maybe is all of the characterization is too, I don't want to say cute, but there's something about it that I personally can't, there's different ways to do, quote, realism. And this type of realism feels like a fake realism to me. I don't know. Just the, the you know, I, well, I found it a weird juxtaposition, the kind of dark world where there's rape and mind rape, basically, and mind lobotomies and then you know oh this were perfect wonderful relationship and and then how everybody loves sue and every you know it's just it's too good to be true i don't like well, maybe other people maybe people i don't know describe their relationships like this the people i know don't okay so i see what you're saying but i mean so you have to think about the character so you have the like kind of fairy tale romance between the superhero and his wife that found each other and they're just kind of perfect for each other and th they have that and then the people who do the dark things are the other people and there's a lot of people around them like it, there's something around this idea between ralph and sue that is a bit storybook that other people clung to which is kind of why they talk about why sue kind of became kind of this honorary justice league member and was part of everything that everybody knew um because there's something just kind of genuinely nice about her I, mm -hmm. you have to admit some of those people that are just nice in an almost infuriating way i suppose but I, then i'm immediately suspicious of them well that's just healthy you know for instance there's the the people that seemingly everyone likes usually if everyone likes you you're not really anyone's friend. You know what I mean? If if you have too many friends. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. You know, I, I don't mean to... 
it just rubbed me the wrong way the way it, the way the a number of the characterizations were presented. But I can see why you other don't trust good like people. Yeah. I hear it. That's why I like you. You're not a good person. So I'm exactly, exactly. I'm comfortable with you. But <laughs> um, I don't I have no then, idea why I like Eric from Longbox Review. I mean, he's just too nice. Well, and what they what they do to play up the drama here is um, it's it's elongated man's birthday, but not his birthday. She's surprising him right. by giving him a birthday party on a day Early. that's not. Like that well, whole she's, cute birthday party thing. That well, she's trying there. to surprise him because he's a detective, and they talk about that. Like being right. the, having the detective in the relationship, you almost have to play with that. And she's willing to do it, but most people. I did wouldn't. like the fact that he's an incredibly good detective, and I did like the way Brad Meltzer spooled that out and how he's not fooled by anything. Thought that was very cool. Yeah. So she does this whole thing where she buys him this antique magnifying glass. And she knows that he knows that that's coming. Mm-hmm. But then she throws something on top to surprise him. Because she's like, even Sherlock Holmes couldn't figure this out. Then she gets brutally murdered. But it turns out she was with child. Which is just kind of like, oh, that's a little that's a little yes. tragedy porn there. But all right. Yeah, I don't know. That's really the first issue, I think. And that... I don't know. It, it worked for me to build up that and the tragedy of it, mm-hmm. which is big because as our title is Never Stay Dead, talking about death in comics right. is what we do every episode because we're thematic. And as I've okay. learned from you, Sue Dibney has stayed dead. To my knowledge. They might, with all their reboots, they might just bring her back and say the identity She might have been happened. back at this point. I honestly don't know. But, but I, I mean, haven't did... heard about anyone talking about Elongated Man being in any comics he was in the background of something a while ago i know but it sounds like in a way that what makes elongated man interesting is that he had this wife maybe killing her off kind of took away what was interesting about him very possibly or it could just be that the elongated man really wasn't interesting a character that was held around and uh this was one way to use him and maybe his shining highlight was only when you have something this dramatic going on yeah i don't know enough about him yeah, I yeah the stretchy characters usually aren't the most interesting, but we get this moment where he has rage, and you're kind of the end of chapter one is after the funeral, um, dealing with kind of our secret cabal of Justice League, which we'll get to in a minute. You know, trying to right. say get me Doctor Light, which leads into what you were talking about, which is the most. I believe talked about moment from the series. Right. So then we find out that Doctor Light raped her raped his wife sue didney mm-hmm. and a bunch of the justice league kind of second level justice leaguers like the green arrow and elongated man and Hawkman caught dr light and dr light basically confessed to them or threatened them with the fact that he's going to get all of their spouses and do things like that to them and he's going to rape sue Dibney again and he's like raving like a madman and they decide to give him a magic lobotomy with uh zatanna's powers which and give him a personality tweak is how they say it right they don't it's inexact and so he becomes kind of or at least they claim they have someone i guess wally west who used to be in the teen titans and who mm-hmm. used to fight dr light a lot saying oh that's why dr light was always such a dummy um mm-hmm. which i don't recall him being a dummy but i has been a long time 
anyway um well i mean i think it was just one of those periods of time thing where you had characters that were written a little more ferociously and then kind of the code kicked in and you had to deal with that and maybe coordinating around that i don't know about the exact timing of all that but i yeah. definitely know there's a lot of that in dc where you had characters who shifted over the years right. and you normally wouldn't try to explain it away but this book is taking a stab at it in an interesting way right so anyway their solution is to give him this magical lobotomy and i'm skipping ahead but later we find out that batman caught them in the middle of doing it so then they gave batman a magical memory wipe but anyway so they all think that dr light remembered that the lobotomy, the magical lobotomy came undone mm-hmm. and that he's the one who's killed Sue Dibney. And I, I presume they think that along with this knowledge of that they gave him this memory wipe because her body was burnt. And I presume Dr. Light has the power to do that. Well, I think that, well, they initially, so in the the first chapter when they're at the funeral, all these heroes go after fire-based supervillains because of the burn idea right turns out none of that's right so these justice leaguers know about this thing that happened presume it was dr light because of what had happened we find out that isn't the case and in the process of pursuing him they actually do remind him which has consequences later in the dc universe that but not in this book yeah i think mostly consequences for the green arrow side of things that was that was odd to me i mean so we've unleashed a mad vicious sadistic rapist again if he ever was like that other than in the this book very alan moore-esque right i guess yes and i suppose you know this is ever since frank miller and alan moore people have been doing lots and different takes on how to make superheroes more realistic right in the Mm -hmm. gritty way and this is another way which hadn't maybe hadn't been done before it doesn't feel exactly like alan moore even though it's in that right tradition of making them grittier and more human um in fact you know before they capture doctor or before they they go off to get dr light and he's hired deathstroke and deathstroke nearly takes them all out mm-hmm. and finally they gouge deathstroke in the eye and manage yeah, dog pile him. and then dog pile on him like it looks almost like something out of some kind of comedy movie of slapstick, a violent slapstick comedy. Mm-hmm. It brings these superheroes down to a pretty low level of fighting in a way. And it brought Deathstroke up to a very high level. Um, I guess he is the Batman of of the villain universe. I thought it was interesting because it's one of, I think, two fight scenes we get through this entire miniseries, really. And it's played to be more clever than about fisticuffs, except at the very end. Right. And I really like that idea of him, you know, preparing for this fight and really going for it. It just made it, it made it a smart read that was a little more fun. And that's something that else that I was thinking is like, most superhero comics couldn't get away with having this little action throughout. But this book is so much better for it, and the moments of action we get feel so much more interesting. And I'm kind of wondering if more books kind of took that approach, if we wouldn't get more thoughtful books. I had very mixed feelings, though, about that fight scene. I mean, it it re- it was clever, and it made Deathstroke seem really cool, but it made our heroes seem like fools. Well, and, and so it did bring... I don't know, it, it reminded me of... Um, movies that 
show like was it called men of mystery or mystery men i know that was based on a comic which i never read the comic but i saw the movie by the flaming character yeah yeah, with ben stiller in it as the guy whose power was that he gets really angry and it just seemed like all of these people were just ineffectual well okay that's very (laughs) so this is playing it up to the idea of them barely making it out of this fight and getting through it because they're b-listers taking on this a-list villain is i think the idea I guess, but, you know, is Hawkman and Zatanna really that bad at fighting that they have yeah. no they have no plan or way to get around? And Kyle Rayner, he gets his finger, fingers broken and he can't use his willpower because his this is very early Kyle Rayner. So he's still a rookie. And uh, well, and so they made this big point of like Deathstroke's trying something with Kyle mm-hmm. that I think once Jeff Johns revitalized the green lantern mythos this wouldn't be right. the case but um here he gets taken out in a way that i just thought it was fascinating because it's always interesting to see how these kind of more mortal villains are going to tackle the green lantern right. who is something I, I breaking his will for a moment is interesting mm-hmm. and it was it was a cool fight but it did to me bring these heroes way down to a much more quote human level you know, real life fights aren't very fun or very pretty. <laughs> That's what makes them interesting. And sometimes the person wins by cheating. Or <laughs> I, I recall a fight I had actually in seventh grade, in which the I felt I had won the fight, but the uh, guy I was fighting stuck his finger in my nose, and my nose started bleeding. And he said, "Well, I won because you have a nosebleed." <laughs> it almost felt on that level. I don't <laughs> Here you go. And then I didn't, you know, so so there's a lot of clever stuff here, but what I, I didn't think, like, after all these revelations of Dr. Light, and he now has his memory back, and then there's no results of that, mm-hmm. they defeat Deathstroke, but they don't even show defeating Dr. Light. Does Dr. I guess Dr. Light gets away? I don't know. It just seems that's totally dropped, and that was so built up if Dr. Light has his memory back. Mm-hmm. Well, he runs off during the fight. I guess he's standing right there staring at them, though, as they tackle Deathstroke. Yeah. Where, that's um, when his memory comes back, right? Right. Well, it's in the movement. So we have this big movement between Ollie and Wally where... Ollie and Wally. <laughs> right. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, I mean, Dr. Light's out. just gone after he remembers. You right. took my mind. That's the last thing. And then he's just not on the page anymore. I think the implica- the implication is that they capture him, but we move on kind of to the next beat because we find out it's not him very quickly. Right. Um, and then uh, there's this bit, as I was saying with Ollie and Wally, where Superman's kind of leaning over elongated man. They're talking about the secret, and Ollie's pointing. You know, like people hear what they want to hear. People know what they want to know, and you see Superman. You know, with an earshot, right. and ignoring it basically there's an implication there that's really interesting the implication is superman knows about all this stuff they've done and is just staying out of it and Mm -hmm. not because he gets it 
Does he get it? I don't know. They all get it. That's the implication by the end of the book Uh is everyone in the Justice League knows or suspects one way or another, but Uh they don't want to push it because what this book is getting to is in order for them to maintain their secret identities, the masks are there, but in order for them to really maintain it, they have to do some things that push what would be some ethical boundaries in order to do that, but it's for the lives of those closest to them. And so no one's really willing to push against it because... And that deconstructs the one part of the superhero fantasy, which is they can get away with being totally good guys and not having these dire consequences, like their wives being raped and killed. So instead it's saying, no, they have to actually do morally questionable things to protect their identities. I feel like... What you're saying makes sense, but as I was reading it, I was like, I I felt like Superman and then later Batman, it was implied Batman must have, with his detective abilities, figured out mm-hmm. what's been done to him and isn't doing yeah. anything about it either. And I just found it strange that Superman and Batman, but particularly Batman, because what would Batman feel like that people have messed with his memory? I mean, he wouldn't like it, but he's also messed with other people. At this point, I mean, we're close to him having the Olmec thing going on. This is around the time he had the just the Justice League dossiers going on. Mm-hmm. Like, Batman's really not that great. And this is the area where we really kind of start to poo right. the Batman mythos while also building him up to this godlike figure. So, so maybe part of what yeah. the New 52 did was kind of bring these heroes back into a more idealized situation. I feel like this book was kind of a standout and that was kind of just in every book. And this book mm-hmm. kind of stood apart, but is still technically part right. of the ongoing story. While some of the characterizations is too cutesy for me and too mm-hmm. just so, which is kind of... To me, an odd just juxtaposition with we're people who have to make morally shady decisions, but everything about my marriage is perfect and I say cute things with my friends and that kind of stuff. But anyway, that was a digression. My real point is, so that was my objection, but my what I admire about it is it's a masterfully unfolded mystery thriller. Um, that's a procedural kind of procedural kind of thriller it's very convincing as you're reading it until i got to say the end but um but so i really you know i kind of poo-pooed the idea of oh a thriller writer writing comics but he really uses his thriller skills he executes them very nicely in this world of superheroes and in this large cast of you know extended justice league family kind of people yeah exquisite pacing and timing of everything you might say and then uh i i feel the next big movement is one that actually ends up defining the entire book which is where gene loring is being hung up by a noose and she is the ex-wife of the adam whose name i always forget anyway they used to be married he's this super scientist and she eventually divorced him because he according to earlier in the book anyway she divorces him because he's always so unemotionally involved in his science and not paying attention to her. Right. And there's several references to the fact that she took half of his 
patents and all, all uh, half of his work basically were rights to half of his work yeah to well i mean this is around kind of that late 90s period where the whole divorce idea was i don't know relatively a big thing and right but it, it was kind of, at first the angle was kind of he was a bad husband so she took him you know through the ringer through the ringer and and maybe Brad Meltzer lives in California, where it's you know fifty fifty. Particularly when you're bad. Um, yeah. So, and this is something that happens throughout the book, and we'll get to it more when there's the chapter with Wonder Woman. But as much as I like the book, there is some straight sexist stuff in here that uh, just like if you could pull out like five panels, the book would be better for mm-hmm. it. <laughs> um, well, the final solution yeah. you could interpret as being based on kind of a sex whole entire sexist i I know what you mean it might or might not i mean you could interpret it that way you could but i'm talking about the stuff where like um some guys talking about staring at wonder woman it's like well you want to go so many inches lower implying her vagina but that's where she's holding the lasso like no that could go that was odd (laughs) i think he just meant stop staring at her boobs and worry about the lasso but yes, her lasso was actually a few inches over from her crotch, so that was an odd moment. But I don't, yeah. I don't think it was intentional, did you? I guess you did. Oh, of course that was intentional. That was uh-huh. the entire point. Without that implication, it makes no sense. And then there's a bit uh-huh. in that first chapter that I did like where a long-haired man's talking to Firebird, and he's like, Long-Haired's like, well, I don't want to be sexist, but like only women ask me about my marriage or something. Right. It's like, why are you bringing the... Uh, I don't know. Yeah, that seemed a very unnecessary thing. Just because Batman doesn't ask you about your relationship doesn't mean all men wouldn't ask you about your relationship. Right, because Batman's a yeah. sociopath. So it so. is kind of a cliche that only women are interested in hearing about, you know, how did you first meet and that kind of thing. Right. So there's this moment with the Adam and breaking his ex-wife free from the noose and the rope that mm-hmm. honestly, to me, for what I know of the Adam, this feels like his um, Spider-Man lifting the rubble moment. Like, this is actually right. a really interesting use of his power in a way that is just pure determination of will. Like, I think this is a really great moment. This is a standout moment for the character. But so he shrinks himself down and then he zooms into the rope that she's been hung hung with over the door. Mm-hmm. And goes inside the rope and then expands himself to break the rope. Mm-hmm. Couldn't he just go to normal size and get the rope off her neck? It wouldn't be as fast. Because uh. he's already in motion. And so he's dealing with it as soon as possible because you only have moments. Because she's already basically hung. And so like it would have to be moments before the neck snaps. So he's like on it. I don't know. I mean, yeah. how you break it down or whatever. Oh, it's not it, it's just it's uh being picky i think because yeah. this is a mystery that seems so tight i start noticing the parts where i'm like well was that yeah. a just comic book flair i guess i mean i see what you're saying but at the same time like i don't know it fits the book and i don't know if that's really a hole or anything but we get this implication of slipknot who's apparently a villain right. that happened in dc they don't even show him here because it's not actually him and it doesn't really matter right and he's not the only person who can tie a knot like i don't like right. they make this big deal about like how the knights the knots tied or whatever yeah. i'm just kind of like 
That's a loose lead. Right. That's that's detective hand wavium, you know, making sound like you're doing some tight detective work when it's really not, as you're just putting right. it. Dick Tracy detective work. It's funny that on her wall she has a copy of People magazine featuring her divorce with him. That's yeah. kind of odd if you got divorced that you would put it the issue of People magazine about the divorce on the wall. But anyway, but it helps tell the story, really. I'm just looking at the pages as we're talking. So, and that that event basic eventually brings them back together and they become lovers again. And I had interpreted it that he wanted to get back with her, but she was the one who divorced him and didn't want a relationship with him. Which, again, yeah. was troubling to me when the revelation eventually comes. Right. Uh, yeah. I don't know. But still, it's fun the way there's these false leads. So they think this one villain, because of the way he tied the the noose, or the way the noose was tied, must have been the one to uh, to hang her. But then they find out it couldn't have happened. Well, I like how Elongated Man and Green Arrow are pointing out, like, no, it's not the squad. It's a false lead. No one really listens to him. They're like, it's a lead. We got to follow it. The Batman turns around from his chair talking to Alfred. It's not the squad. And everyone's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Well, Batman says so. Uh, This book does play on the whole Batman-Superman dichotomy in the DC Universe in a way that I actually appreciate, because there's a little bit of resentment with them to everyone else that Mm. I appreciate. Also, I was curious, there's this moment between Oliver and Hal, where Hal's the specter at this time. I didn't know about that, so that was interesting, but confusing. You didn't know about that. No, I did not know that Hal was the specter. <laughs> Hal? I feel like we talked about this before. We have not talked about Hal Jordan, to my knowledge. Well, we talked about the specter at one point. That had to have come we up. We did talk about the specter, but I don't remember. Maybe you told me that, and it, it was just so bizarre that it slipped right through my head. Comics. <laughs> I, I was just curious what you thought about that moment and that whole status quo well it was one of those scenes which again makes it seem like this is a primer on the dc universe at the time that really the whole point of it was just showing well a it was showing us something going on in the dc universe but basically he went and tried to get hal the specter his old friend to give him some leads or just tell him who the criminal was because he's a angel of death from god (laughs) But Hal says, you know, I can't do that. And I can't, if God, unless God, he doesn't use the word God, but unless I'm assigned to get revenge on this particular person, I can't. I can't choose who I get God's vengeance upon. It kind of is just a little visit to this corner of the DC universe that's a dead end. Maybe it makes it look like we're searching out different clues and trying everything. Well, I I was kind of curious about your opinion on the whole, like, God doesn't care about this brutal murder mystery angle, which is a weird, weird thing to throw in the middle. Like, which murders does God, like, uh, vengeance upon? (laughs) Yeah. Certainly not on, you know, brutal rape murders. Those those he lets slip by. Um, I mean, if you really think about it, the whole idea that there's this vengeance of God that just gets vengeance occasionally is kind of a weird thing anyway so you can't think too deeply about the specter i suppose well so right. another thing is we spend a lot of time with what looks like some 
club of assassins who are supervillain assassins. Mm-hmm. It includes Deathstroke, but it also kind of on the periphery includes um, Boomerang. And then we got a long riff on Boomerang and his long lost son. Before that, I was kind of curious because you brought up the action sequence before where the heroes get whooped. They run into um, Deadshot Melvin? Merlin. Um, and I didn't and know. Who, Mer, is Merlin like an archer villain? Yeah, he's a he's an arch of Green Arrow. Because uh, uh, arch, archery, archer, and yes. they're arch villain. Wow, against each clever. Other. Yeah, that was like a triple entendre. Yes. If we can... You should yeah. get a job in advertising. <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> uh, I don't know, but this is a fight where they just they whoop, whoop this time they whoop the um, villains. But again, it was deconstructing the supervillains in a sense that they just kind of hang out. And I, yeah. I was not even sure where they're hanging out. I thought they were saying it was like a satellite that they were using while the Justice League were away, and then they would. There was a lot of stuff that confused me here, I guess, in terms of the villains. They're just hanging out, man. You know. But we got a lot of stuff about the villains that, again, in the end, tends not to really be part of the story. But it was interesting window dressing, I guess. And then there's a moment where, with an errant swing, some dude dressed up like Prince Valiant um, cuts Firestorm's costume and he goes and blows up. Right. I was like, that's a... That's a big there's, thing. There's, that's a big thing for a body count that's like right. three pages and not really talked about here again. I feel like this had to be covered in another comic. Sue Dibney dies and there's a giant funeral and everybody on every superpowered person on Earth spends their time trying to solve the mystery. But Firestorm dies and it's never mentioned again. Yeah, well, no one really likes him. Uh, yeah. This was the white Firestorm. He was expendable. Maybe this is how they uh, got rid of him. I mean. Yeah. Do you know where there tie-in comics to this? There was a uh, intro to Identity Crisis, and there was a lot around uh-huh. it, if I remember right. I don't know all about it. Um, so it, was it wasn't one of these things, as far as you know, and as far as I know, I haven't noticed that there was like, like if I go looking through the do- uh, dollar bins or the 50 cent bins, yeah, I often, for other events, see all these other comics that no one cares about anymore that were tie-in issues. Yeah, I feel like there's a countdown like mini to this, and then um, maybe there's a few issues that touch on, but I don't think it's like the way we see events now. Right. I think like this a was banner a book across way. every issue saying yeah. identity crisis, and I think it's so much stronger for it. Yes, frankly. hopefully. But the firestorm thing and a few other details do well, like you just said, the Doctor Light thing spins spun out into the regular universe there. Right, and then. Uh, then we get kind of that boomerang thing that's been building up where boomerang sun and boomerang connect. Right. And I found that really interesting, but then the whole thing and his son has super speed too. Yeah. But I didn't fully understand where that came from or what that meant. Like they said, he said, Oh, that means so-and-so wasn't really my mother. Right. So boomerang banged Barry's daughter. I don't know. <laughs> super speed seems to be hereditary, so it would have to be... Is there a super speed woman? Yeah, that's her name. Who? What? Super speed woman. <laughs> There's someone quick, 
But I think she's from the gold. Jesse Quick, she's from the Super Future. Oh, There's the Super Future, okay. Other ones. There's what? Um, I don't know. It seems unlikely Jesse Quick would have had a relationship with Boomerang. Especially yeah. as he's presented here as such a low-level loser. I'm sure it's touched on in the Flash somewhere around here. Uh, I have read very few Flash comics in my time. But so that's so. another thing. His son seemed like a really important element, but again, in the end, it doesn't really tie in. Right. So they're all, what's fun is the red herrings in this book become things later for other creators to touch on or whatever but to this mystery there are all these red herrings so this one is a particularly odd red herring because i don't know if even the heroes deal with the new boomerang really right the old boomerang plays a factor though right so the new the old boomerang does become important and he is hired to go kill red robin's father although maybe he's just hired to go burglarize red robin's father's house yeah, but the villain well, leaves a gun for Red Robin's father, and says, "Protect Robin. yourself." Oh, it's just Robin. It's, it's not Red Robin. Just Robin. Who's Red Robin then? It's Tim Drake. But this is back when Tim Drake was Robin. Uh, he had the series. He was proven to be the best Robin of all time. Right. Everybody loved him. He had the car. Right. Is everything. And his parents Robin's. were alive until this. Yeah. Point. Well, right. And he really stood out as a beacon of hope. It's really, this really addresses a lot of why Tim is the best Robin. We all need uh, to recognize and understand Well, again, that. with the pseudo realism of this book and the conversations he had with his dad, I found it extremely hard to, taking the realism that I'm supposed to be, extremely hard to believe his dad would let him go out and be Robin. You know what I'm saying? I know. Boys will be boys, Damien. You gotta <laughs> let them do what they're gonna well, do. I got a daughter, so I don't have to let her be Robin. But I guess you're gonna have to let Dean... When, Spoiler. <laughs> you're gonna have to let Dean out when he's 13. Let him put on a fancy costume, jump out your window, and go fight crime all night long while you sit at home and watch TV. Yeah, I, I mean... I can see that's gonna really be what happens. <laughs> I mean... it if you get too realistic things like that are i just that again threw me out of the book well and so this was something that was an ongoing plot point in robin at the time where this was a tension point between him and his dad and they play on it here and part of the reason his dad lets it go is because he's doing all this good i mean if you knew your kid was out saving lives making a difference in the community not just eating potato chips on the couch but how old is he seems to be 13 or 14 i thought he's supposed to be a little older but maybe yeah and there's a lot of and also the dialogue here with the father i don't have the father part right in front of me actually so but in my memory the dialogue with the father was very i love you son oh you know it's just too good to be true i don't think (laughs) (laughs) some people say stuff i don't know then it didn't hit me as like too corny or whatever yeah, my conversations with my dad were not um, monstrous or anything, but we did not. <laughs> he did not say, you know, I love you, son. I trust you. Whatever you do, you're making the right choice and I'll just back you up. I mean, that's. See, my dad said that to me verbatim a few oh, times really? in my life. So, <laughs> it, uh... as you were jumping out in your long underwear out the window, he would say that. No, but I mean, like, when I was going for my black belt and was very likely about to get knocked out or something, uh-huh. you know. 
I don't. Yeah. So I guess I've just lived the wrong life to believe in these people. But uh, well, I'm here to set you straight. If I'd grown up in Colorado instead of Connecticut, I would have been different. Y- yes. <laughs> my my father would, you know, probably tell me some bit of advice or something, and tell you how to raise horses, probably. No, we didn't do that in my part of Connecticut. Well, yeah. I don't know. It, it, I had a lot of trouble just buying into the Tim Drake and his father stuff. And I do want to point out here that there's a very famous page here with um, Tim Drake kind of crying out over his father's dead body with the boomerang, with the tears boomerang running out. coming it's, out of it, his father's chest. Yeah, yeah, I, I've seen that page a lot. It's, it's a pretty famous one. It is pretty powerful and interestingly this is one that rags um did differently than what brad Meltzer explicitly detailed in the script mm-hmm. and once brad saw it he's like oh no you're right and when you read the backup in this that back and forth more or less happens at least five times is it this throughout page? it's pretty interesting i'm trying to make out your yeah it's on my ipad so it's hard to see no oh. it's after oh, okay it's after that Oh, is it where Batman's hugging him? Yeah, it's like over a his page. father's dead body. Yeah, it's not like a splash page. It is a splash page. It is a splash, or it's a full page drawing. Yes, it's a splash page. That's a cool drawing of Batman on that page. But I, yeah, I had trouble with all of that. But it was kind of cool because what we realize is. If for some reason that now here we as readers realize someone set up the father and boomerang to have this violent confrontation and make it look like it was another that boomerang was the person who was killing everyone all along but why the heroes believe that because boomerang has none of the abilities that would have allowed him to do all these uh closed room murders sometimes these guys step up i don't know um so what happens in the end is we are revealed who the murderer is mm -hmm. by the murderer herself in bed with her husband the adam or her ex-husband the adam right no detective figures it out and in fact we're left to assume that the adam told everyone later on what happened but the adam just bundles her up and takes her off to arkham asylum just like that well it's implied that he punches her out first okay but that again broke the the problem when you try to make things too real is then i for me then i want a lot of reality and you don't just get go to the asylum because your husband says so well no but he was able to you'd have to have a judge put someone in a place like that well first of all we're dealing with the dc universe's justice and penile system which is not ours their penis system penile no sorry i'm just being a bad boy wow i mean i know i'm working on a 14 year maturity level but Uh you don't have to drop to 12 um so i mean if someone confesses mass mm -hmm. murders throwing them somewhere i i don't think there's any story after all the build-up it's just like he knocks her out wraps her in a blanket and gives her gives her over to this guy with the weird haircut. It's a bowl cut. A bowl cut. Which is what Mysterio and Dr. Octopus had. Yeah. I mean, it just, it wrapped up weirdly, I thought. 
and it, and it, she for this quote supervillain who could come up with all these different ways of killing people and fooling well, people then just confesses to him and is easily taken out by him with absolutely no struggle at all well but she so no not quite so she wasn't she didn't actually do any of the stuff she was the quote-unquote mastermind no she um, went inside gene Lo- i mean uh dibney's brain and gave her a brain hemorrhage of some kind right right and she did yeah but um but I mean, she was working with the calculator to hire Deathstroke. She was, um, and hired, had the calculator hire Boomerang, where she did purposely hire Boomerang to be someone low rent, thinking that he wouldn't be able to kill the father, like thinking that it just put a scare in it. And she um, faked and her own seeming almost death, the hanging. Right. But by what she says, she wasn't intending to kill anyone, didn't particularly care that she did but she was just trying to put a scare in the community so that her husband would come back to her which solves something that they pulled throughout the entire book which batman couldn't figure out which was who stands to gain what's the motivation right but since most of the book was narrated by green arrow i it wasn't focused on that who stands to gain thing but the other thing is she was just not set up as someone who missed her husband that is maybe the falling point of that which has definitely been brought up a lot of times through people talking through that's how they keep us from figuring out that it could have been her because we had no reason at all to suspect true though it would have been better to maybe set up where that change of heart happened a bit Mm. because they could have leaned closer to that to show that she cared and was interested but then we wouldn't necessarily suspect because that's a huge leap to make i in fact, the it, emphasis it, was that that uh, he thought she'd probably be the only woman he ever loves. So it, the whole yeah. thing felt like he would be the one who would want to get back to her. So if she wanted him back, she could just say, hey, I want you back. Yeah, well, you can't have the guy who shrinks be a wife beater or whatever. You know, that's been done. Well, no, but my point is, that she, except for the fact that she's insane, she didn't need to do all this to get him back. There was no... Right requirement on her and it, it, it things could have been shaped differently so i in the end i felt like brad Meltzer is a master at creating this story but um to make the mystery unsolvable by anyone but him he had to manipulate things so that there was no way that there was any connection any logical connection to her so i don't know i mean having some crazy woman go way too far to try to do something like that um was a motivation that because she's crazy so the idea that she'd handle it sanely or with you know moderation Mm -hmm. i think is a fair thing to glide past but but maybe they should have be handled better I mean, it might have been too much of a clue, but we should have seen that they their divorce was based on the fact that, you know, there was something unstable about her. It all seemed to well, be about the problem with him being a cold scientist who, who couldn't get emotionally right. involved. Well, maybe. Yes, that's true. I don't know. It worked for me while I was reading it. I, I thought it came together. And, and it did occur to me while getting through that end that this... We've got the woman who divorces you and takes half your stuff, and then she turns out to be a psycho killer who kills your friends to get you yeah. back. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a... Well, 
you have to let the villains be I mean, bad. I guess, you know, you can argue, oh, well, but on the other hand, we have this great woman, Sue Dibney. And so we have one really saintly woman and one really evil woman. Kind of the yeah. modern day uh, horror Madonna. But. Yeah, there's a bit of that. I mean, I know this book doesn't uh, pass as everyone's mm. what sniff test or flinch test or whatever. But um, it's very interesting. It's just tonally, tonally alien to me. For even though I love Alan Moore, <laughs> as we well, talked yeah. about, the king of uh, dissecting these superheroes and bringing them down to the human human level. But and then we. Uh, so what do you think at the very end? We have the elongated man lying in bed talking to Sue Dibney. And he stretches out his arm and turns out the light on her side of the bed. Mm -hmm. And we hear a voice that says, I love you too. Mm -hmm. And someone, because the captions are always someone talking, right? Says, Ralph and Sue Dibney, husband and wife. I don't know if that's Ralph's thoughts or someone else's thoughts. But it makes him a little, it makes relationships a little psycho. Well, (laughs) you wanted realism. Yes. I, I was very intrigued by that, but uh, it leaves me thinking. Yeah, I, thinking that uh, that uh, the elongated man is off his rocker now. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, overall, I think this book isn't perfect. It has a lot of flaws. There's definitely some things that could be touched up or whatever. But by and large, I thought it was interesting. There's a lot to it, and I got more out of it and had more fun reading it than I had a number of other things recently. Though Daredevil is great too, just um... right. No, it's de- I agree. It's definitely a fun read, and I'm not sure why I pushed back against it so hard. But it was well, this dichotomy of the realism and, to me, the cutesiness. But well, I think it might be somewhat praise in a way because you were invested enough in the book to care about those details and care about kind of the inconsistencies, and they are there. Right. That's true. It, it was so well done that I focused on the flaws. <laughs> well, and that can happen very easily. I, I do that a lot with some of the Spider-Man stuff that I can be a bit more down on because it doesn't meet whatever. And I realized, too, reading this book, if I was reading DC at the time, this book would have driven me bananas. The amount of death, the amount of like impact for no reason, like that Firestorm thing. Mm-hmm. Because this is past and kind of in history i'm able to read it enjoy and some of the stuff i don't like as much i can just let go more easily but when it's now and comics nowadays and i can go yell at the creator on Mm -hmm. twitter you know um that is often the case stuff that you know has a lot of flaws three or four years later or 10 or 20 years later oh it's just this interesting thing you know from comic book history but when it's the issues coming out right now, you get all enraged and like they're messing with things and they're screwing things up. So it's the funny psychology of it. It's much like I once uh, from the library reread uh, Avengers versus X-Men <laughs> or Avery X, as it was called, oh, which, yeah. you know, was reviled when it was coming out. And I read a few issues when it was coming out and gave up on it. But when I read the trade, I liked you know, it six years later a fun little romp from marvel history <laughs> yeah there's a couple things there that actually did have impacts that i didn't like that are still affecting particular cyclops to this day right, that right. i don't like the yeah. way that it was handled because it felt like the people who are talking about the impacts didn't read that book fully yeah but yeah 
Yeah, so when I read it out of the library, I just read it by itself without thinking about its relationship to past and future X-Men and Avengers tales. It definitely, I think, messed up the Marvel Universe, both the Avengers and the X-Men, for quite a while. And as you say, still maybe having impact. And I don't, you know, so the impacts of this are mostly erased because of New 52, I think. Although Rebirth supposedly says everything still happened, but... I don't think well, we. Yeah. I don't think in uh, current DC comics we have this particular brand of realism around at all. Well, we don't. We don't. We also don't have this better status quo going. I liked the kind of retrofitted DC that was happening in this era, where the JSA predated predated the League right. and informed a lot of that, and you had the Teen Titans working in conjunction but separately and you had these fringe heroes and there's kind of more of a network and the way black canary was being handled then versus now and a number of other characters you had oracle around and there was enough cast where you could pull an elongated man and have some lineage but also not have to deal with them every month and dc just felt so much bigger and grander and brighter even with a book like this and now it just feels so much smaller and drabber and just like really commercialized. Okay. I don't, I can see commercialized, but I feel like it's kind of grander than it is in this, where everything's kind of grubby, really. I can see where you, I don't know, I, I feel like reaching down to the heroes, like having them have these satellites and have kind of this celebrity status and all that uh-huh. makes it feel with it being something you can reach to and have those details to pour into it feels more than like the way we do tom king's Batman. maybe it's more it's more fleshed out that what they yeah, have definitely. right now there's a sense of the both in the new 52 and then the rebirth versions of the dc universe that it's much sketchier like the, the, they're relying on all this old material but not relying on it so they don't have all the bits of the universe definitively filled in. It might be that Sue Dibney's alive. It might be she's not. It might be that the elongated man's still around. But who knows? It's just not dealt with a lot of a lot of these things. Yeah. But if you were a newer reader, it would be impossible to deal with all of that stuff if it were still in place. I think it's a bit of a catch-22. There is that. In order for me to access this era of DC where I was there... I kind of had to come back to it because of you did need kind of a certain level, but I also felt like it was accessible. You know, Wikipedia was around. You could get access to older books and you kind of read up to to that. Right. That's true. If you're motivated, there's in the modern era, which this was part of the modern era, you, you can find all the material in one way or another without even having to have access to a comic book shop. Well, and to talk about that more, it's crazy now um, being like, Oh, reaching out to a whole bunch of spider-man fans through the other podcasts twitter and whatnot the amount of kids who have read spider-man stories that i couldn't have even fathom purchasing because they're just reading it on their app or whatever and so the, they they burn through comics whereas i had to read the same comic like 10 times because that's what i had they're just going through stuff it's yeah me too in my youth it was all about reading comics over yeah the over access over. difference is insane my daughter, you know, basically has acts, you know, I find out she likes Supergirl and then we can access, you know, 500 Supergirl issues. And it, it, then it's she just doesn't care after a while because mm-hmm. 
Of course, another problem is that a lot of those Supergirl comics are horrible, but that's that's another thing. But just in general, like right. we can access unlimited, like through Hoopla, we can access unlimited Archie comics. So it's not like there's just one or two Archie comics in the house and that's all you've got. But instead, you, know, you can read them, read them all. Yeah. And it does make me wonder, you know, if in general with this age of, you know, endless abundance that, uh, to quote myself from the other podcast, uh, that we will, we will not care about things as much. Well, I think what's going to happen, because we're dealing with an age where that's all new and fresh. And so there's a number of people who are kind of drawn to kind of like dig through it. But what's going to end up happening is sages like you and I are going to be curating and pointing out these gems from the past that people can go back to. And so there's more value in the sort of thing that we're doing here to talk about these things uh, and point to stories to go to. Future generations will be coming to our podcast to figure out what's most important. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> it's hard to put it down. I mean, it's cool that you, you know, if you decide you like the X-Men, you can get the Marvel app and read every issue of the X-Men ever published, probably, or at least not a, quite, but close, a like, large yeah. chunk. You yeah. can read, you can probably read oh, everything that Chris Claremont ever wrote, for instance. I bet all of that's on the app. I don't think all of it is, but I think the stuff you can't read is kind of his, um, like the uh, X-Men Forever stuff that a lot of people pan, but is excellent. I think some of that kind of stuff is on the app, though, and eventually more of it will be. I, I know some of it's missing because I follow a number <clears throat> of X-Men people and they do talk about holes okay. and some of them being frustrating. But by and large, like you can yeah, there are holes, but there are load. massive amounts of stuff <clears throat> that you can access. And I've been thinking like I'm kind of fading on DC right now. Sure. And I except for Jimmy Olsen, right? Uh, I'm getting it. I'm not super excited about it. Oh my gosh! It's getting better every time we it's talk. Getting better. <laughs> getting better. Yeah. Well, it's the best thing DC's putting out. Oh, I think the best thing DC's putting out is uh, Freedom Fighters, which will be over in two more issues. What's that? It's uh, another universe where the Nazis took over, and they had a uh, Superman on their side, and then they uh, took over the United States, and its modern day United States has been ruled by the Nazis for a long time. Oh. Anyway, it's really well done. It's a it's a maxi series. It's twelve issues. Okay. It's written by Robert Vendetti and it has incredible art by a number of different artists. Yeah, sorry, the Nazis won stories always uh, yeah, I know. put me off. Me too. But this is good despite that. So anyway, thanks for making me read this book because I did enjoy it once I got into it. I also I'm just dying to know more about boomerang jr <laughs> who had yeah, I don't know when that super speed in. and super boomerang powers which is which is a bigger power boomerangs or super speed i'm not sure i think it's the boomerangs oh okay yeah because they're cool they come back to you but if you catch them wrong they cut your fingers off so. right and that's why australians are so powerful yes <laughs> that and kangaroos in mm -hmm. in marvel comics anyway and platypuses i want a pet platypus uh -huh. but i'm not allowed to have one it's a tragedy perhaps someday if you're good to your wife she'll let you have one. maybe maybe she's probably the perfect wife right i i thought so okay well i'm gonna go kill myself now but i'll be back in the next episode <laughs> turkish twist <laughs> <laughs>